Hello, welcome to BBC World News. It's exactly a year since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. President Zelensky has welcomed a vote at the United Nations calling for the immediate and unconditional withdrawal of Russian troops. The resolution was backed by an overwhelming majority of countries, which he described as a powerful signal of global support. Our correspondent James Waterhouse reports from Kyiv a year on. A thud marking the moment when Ukraine and the world changed forever. Bigger land grab. We've just heard a siren go off for the first time. We haven't heard that before. After months of build-up, 150,000 Russian soldiers crossed the border. Millions headed the other way. A country under attack, with its people caught in the middle. Where Russia retreated, horrors were revealed. Ukraine's president became a wartime leader. His video addresses now a nightly ritual. Moscow is still framing this as a defensive war. Today, once again, we are in grave danger. Using Ukraine, the collective West is seeking to dismember Russia, to deprive it of its independence. These attempts are doomed to fail. The United Nations has voted to demand Russia stops its invasion. Today, the UK is going to urge countries to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. For now, in the West, there is broad unity. But that could change the longer this war goes on. Ukraine has reclaimed some of what was taken, like here in her song. Complete liberation is a long way off. James Waterhouse, BBC News, Kyiv. Well, let's talk to the BBC's Russia editor, who's in Moscow, Steve Rosenberg. Steve, uh, one year on, is it possible to tell how much support this continuing war has there? Mm. It's quite a lot of support, really. Uh, I would say around maybe two-thirds of the, the Russian public uh, back it. Maybe 15% of people here are totally, completely, utterly, almost rabidly uh, behind the, uh, the war, to the extent that they would be happy to see Ukraine wiped off the face of the earth. Maybe 50% of the Russian public loyally support Vladimir Putin and, and the special military operation, partly because the propaganda in the state media here is so powerful and is telling Russians from morning till night that this is a just war. And Steve, hearing Vladimir Putin talking this week, a very defiant, very confident-sounding Vladimir Putin, what gives him that confidence and is it genuine? You know, if you've been in power for, for 23 years, as Vladimir Putin has been, and if you're used to coming out on top all the time and winning, as Vladimir Putin is, whether it's winning one presidential election after another, or it's crushing the opposition, or it's sowing division in Europe, then it's difficult to conceive that a decision that you've taken could turn out to be a mistake, a miscalculation, a, a fatal error. I think Vladimir Putin cannot conceive that he could lose this. Plus, I think he's being pushed on, fueled by an almost messianic belief that it is his historic duty to recover lands he believes belong to Russia.
belonged in the it belonged in a, in a Russian Empire. It's almost as if he wants to recreate in some shape or form uh, the Russian Empire. And there's a practical point to make here too. I think he's counting on Ukraine fatigue in the West. He's in this for the long haul. He believes he has the resources to secure some kind of victory here. And I think he hopes that America and Europe will get tired of backing Ukraine with money and with weapons. That may well be another miscalculation, but I think it's something he's hoping for. And Steve, over the last year, what costs do you see that this war has had on Russia? What can you see around you that's different over the last year? Oh, so much is different. I mean, very often it feels to me like this is, this is another country. You know, when you, when you hear the parallel reality that is being portrayed in the media here, telling you all the time that Russia didn't start this war, Russia didn't invade Ukraine, Russia never starts wars, it only finishes them. Portraying Russia not as the aggressor, but as the victim here, uh, and, and accusing the West of starting this war, that's very different. And also, Russia feels now like a country on a war footing. Everything is being mobilised to support the special military operation, whether it's school children being told to write letters to Russian soldiers on the front line, or whether it's Russian factories and enterprises having to make various supplies and items uh, for the war effort. Putin has made it clear to his people and to the Russian elites that things are not going to go back to the way they were before, that everything has changed. Uh, and he made that very clear in his New Year's address when he was delivering the speech and behind him were men and women in, in uniform. That was a, a visual message to the people that this is now a different place. Steve, do stay with us, if, if you will. We're going to get the perspective from Brussels, from Jess Parker there. Uh, but let's talk to James Waterhouse, who is standing where he was standing exactly a year ago in Kyiv. James, to you, how different do things look today? Well, as Steve was saying there, Ukraine has changed in just about every way. Um, that said, the democratic, democratically elected government is still in power. And I've got to be honest, when I stood here a year ago, I half expected to see uh, Russian soldiers wandering the streets. Why? Well, Ukraine was the underdog against one of the biggest armies on the planet. And that is still the case. But what we have seen is a resolve few predicted or expected. Ukraine has defended itself. It is still fighting for its very survival and it is desperate to try and seize the initiative in the coming months. But wherever you are in this country, this is a war which touches you. You can be under threat from long-range missile strikes. There are towns and cities which are based along a front line which has seen active fighting for the best part of, well, for nine years now. People have learned to live with the anxieties, the trauma and the pressures that this conflict brings. And sadly, all signs are pointing to this war, you know, very much being active in a year's time, perhaps. I could be wrong, but at the moment, this is an attritional, costly war in just about every sense. And James, I asked Steve what the cost of this war has been to Russians over the last year. What has the cost been to Ukraine? Well, we're talking about a conflict where hundreds of soldiers are dying every day. When you speak to people, they know someone who is fighting on the front, or they know someone who they've been separated from, or they know someone who has been killed. Um, 
while Ukraine ultimately won the Battle of Kiev, a month into the attack on the capital, Russian forces were forced to retreat. But what we have seen in this part of the country, as well as elsewhere where there's been liberation, you start to realise as the tide recedes just what has taken place. This is a country that has seen towns and cities almost destroyed. Families have been torn apart uh, and there is overwhelming evidence of war crimes being committed. When you're talking about that level of trauma, that will take a long time, years, for a country to recover from. And it's only really able to start that recovery process once this conflict is over, really, because as we speak, Russia occupies around a fifth of this vast country and the fighting is incredibly static. And to you, Jess, in Brussels, Europe and the US have been so supportive over the last year, but to how firm might that support remain, given the huge costs to other parts of the world as well? Yeah, I mean, there have been costs faced uh, in Europe. Of course, uh, one of those costs has been rising energy prices, uh, which many Europeans have had to face. But in terms of Western unity, look, I mean, I think a year ago when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was an immense sense of shock here within the EU, but they were almost shocked into action. And something that you saw, particularly in those initial phases of the war, those opening weeks and months, is the EU coming together and being united in passing very significant sanctions packages at a speed that really belied the EU's reputation for being extremely slow moving. And in a way, the bloc almost seemed to find its voice. As time has gone on in terms of passing those sanctions packages against the Kremlin, that has got harder. They're just trying to get a tenth package over the line in time for this anniversary. They're meeting uh, again today. But there have been historic firsts for the EU in a number of areas. I mean, they've been essentially funding weapons to a third party conflict. That was seen as a historic first here for the bloc. In terms of that unity, look, some nations particularly Poland, the Baltic states, have persistently been more hardline in saying we must support Ukraine, we must make sure Russia doesn't win. And sometimes countries like Germany and France have been accused of being a little bit more hesitant. But I think overall in the, the last year, when you look at EU unity, it is largely held together with some exceptions. Notably, Hungary has always been quite or has started to be pretty critical of EU sanctions against Russia. But over the past year, I think as a whole, they'll feel that they have held together. But the question now, as we're discussing, is what happens next? What you'll hear from people here in the European Union is that they will hold firm, they will support Ukraine. But of course, public opinion is also key. Politicians essentially, uh, you know, of course, in charge of the individual member states, and then they bring their voices here, and they'll always be watching the public mood. Jess, thanks very much. Jessica Parker there in Brussels. Also, thank you to Steve Rosenberg in Moscow and James Waterhouse in Kyiv. Well, I'm joined now from Kyiv by Elena Chevkrivchova, who volunteers teaching English to Ukrainian soldiers. Elena, thank you for waiting to talk to us. I wonder how it feels to you to have this war still going on after a whole year? Well, actually, for me, the war started in 2014 when I forced to flee from my home in Donetsk when it was occupied by Russian troops. And when the full-scale invasion broke out on this day a year ago, I was determined to stay in Kyiv and do anything it takes 
to be useful and to help my country. I think on this day, the reaction of all Ukrainians was like fight or flight. And for me, a year ago, it was to fight. I will ask you what you've been doing in a moment, but uh, you you mentioned you're from Donetsk and, and life has been turned upside down for more than eight years now. You're from Bakhmut and that city has, has had a particularly terrible time. Do you know what's happening there right now? Yeah, the true Bakhmut is my hometown. And now we know that it's a battle-scared city still held by Ukrainian troops. And it stands as a symbol of our Ukrainian resistance. And I'm really proud of it. But um, when I come across those videos and pictures and reports from Bakhmut, I see my family home, which is ruined, burned, with windows blown out. Um, I see my school, which is a historical building built a century ago, which is now totally destroyed. And, you know, the streets of Bakhmut, which I know like the back of my hand, uh, are dilapidated. The homes of my friends and relatives are destroyed and it breaks my heart. It's, it's really devastating right now, but uh, I'm sure that uh, the armed forces of Ukraine will hold the city uh, and will free our land from the uh, aggressor very soon. Elena, tell me what you're doing in terms of you, you mentioned you'd, you chose to fight rather than flight. Tell me what yes. your work composes now. You're, you're teaching Ukrainian soldiers English before they head to the front line. Yes, that's right. Uh, I actually, I've been teaching English since 2009, being a Cambridge certified teacher, and I used to prepare people for international exams, uh, ran my online language school, and hardly could I imagine that I would ever live in a military base and teach English to the military. But when the um, war, uh, when the full-scale invasion started, uh, I decided to do what I can do best. It's teaching. So I moved to a training base, to a military base to explore the environment to investigate the needs, requirements, and peculiarities of the target audience of the military. And uh, I... Uh, developed a course for them uh, and currently I'm also teaching English here in Kyiv at the headquarters of a territorial defense unit and I think that in the nearest future English will become one of the uh, major uh, courses for the military because uh, as we can see Britain has already given us and will continue arming us with modern armor tanks, APCs, IFVs, artillery and air defense pieces and they must be used effectively. Olena. That is why I think that Ukrainian military should be also armed with uh, um, English. Right. So that is why English is so important to soldiers uh, in this war in Ukraine. Olena, one final question. You are actually a native Russian speaker. We've heard Russia try to justify this war so many times by saying the Russian ethnic Russians, the Russian language is under attack in Ukraine. That's why they needed to invade. What do you think of that argument? I think it's nonsense because um, because there was never um, any uh, discrimination against Russian-speaking people. And a year ago, I uh, totally switched to Ukrainian in order to prove that Ukraine has its own language and we have to preserve it. And um, 
I am uh, convinced that uh, Ukrainian people should speak Ukrainian and uh, they shouldn't and mustn't use uh, Russian because uh, the Russian language is the language of uh, the aggressor. Elena Cherkrishova, we are very grateful to speak to you today. Thank you very much for uh, joining us there from Kyiv, but uh, originally from Bakhmut, which has seen so much in this war.